Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Monday, January 29th. I hope you had a great weekend. I hope something that you did over the weekend brought you joy. And if you worked over the weekend, I thank you again for that. I know that that isn't the easiest thing in the world to do, to be out of sync with the rest of the world, but we appreciate the fact that you do it. It is going to be a busy day today. We have a lot to talk about. Let's just for a second put Donald Trump off to the side. Um, At 3 o'clock today, Mayor Johnson is supposed to be talking uh, about the migrants. Remember, we are coming up very close on when the migrants that we have been housing in shelters are supposed to be what? Not kicked to the curb, but um, there is a, a deadline and they're supposed to be out and about. I don't know if you read the city of Naperville, Naperville for a while was... Um, trying to set up some kind of a program where if you were a Naperville resident and you wanted to house a migrant family, you could do that. I'm not quite sure what happened, but apparently um, either for legal or other reasons, they've decided that they are not going to move forward with that. They are going to find some other way. It is a difficult tricky situation because the Venezuelan migrants don't have a Venezuelan community in Chicago that they can count on. Because remember, we have had, we have had more, (laughs) we have had more Ukrainians come into this country than we have had Venezuelans. But you don't read about that. The, The Ukrainians are not sleeping on the floor of a police station because we have such a huge Ukrainian community that friends and family members and and churches, um, they've absorbed, they've absorbed this. Um, it is, it is something that has been Not a problem because the system worked the way it was supposed to. There was infrastructure. There was support. That is something that we don't have for the Venezuelan community, which is why, you know, they've they've had these problems with, you know, people who are hanging out on street corners because until the Biden administration acted, they couldn't get jobs. You know, it has been a mess. Anyway, uh, they're about to be kicked out of the shelters. So hopefully at three o'clock today, the mayor will talk about what's going to happen next. And hopefully it is something that we can all live with and something that is incredibly humane. Now we can talk about Donald Trump, okay? (laughs) Yeah. He's such a smart businessman. You know, when he got the $5 million judgment that E. Jean Carroll won, all he had to say was nothing. All he had to say was nothing. That's it. 
That's all he had to say. All he had to do was keep quiet. But he couldn't do that. He is such a smart businessman. He is so successful that um, he turned a $5 million penalty into an 83.3 million dollar liability the jury asking the question why not give her more she's asking for some more but we you know what let's give her three times the amount she's asking for because we agree with her lawyer's argument that the only way to keep him quiet, to the only way to teach him a lesson is to hit him in the pocketbook, is to hit him in the pocketbook. And so they did. Now, I've, sadly, aren't we we all learning a lot more about the legal system than we ever wanted to know? I am. I can tell you with utter certainty that I'm learning a lot more. He is going to appeal these verdicts, but he is not allowed to move forward in the legal system without putting the money that he might have to pay. He doesn't have to give it to E. Jean Carroll, but he has to put it in an escrow account. He has to take the amount of money he was punished with, the amount of money he was told to pay her. If he wants to appeal that judgment, he can't just use it as a delaying tactic to save the money. He has to take that amount of money and put it in a bank account. It has to be held there. He has said that he's worth billions. And I was just reading an accounting of his worth. And one accounting from one of the financial publications said that he's probably worth $3 billion, but the vast majority The vast majority of that money is what you call illiquid. You know, I might have a lot of value in my house, and that might count if you're trying to figure out my net worth. But you know what it takes to sell a house. You know, you got to get it cleaned up. You got to straighten it up. You got to hire a realtor. Even if you're in a hot market, it takes time. It isn't like a stock where you can go on E-Trade in five minutes and sell the stock. Those are called liquid investments because you can, duh, liquidate them very quickly. But most of his money is tied up in his hotels and his golf courses. And who knows if there's even a market for those. But by even by that financial... Um, publications estimate, even though the vast majority of his wealth is not available to him on a quick basis, they estimated that probably 
at least $400 million is available to him, you know, without going through a sale or some other rigmarole. Long story, long-winded way of getting to my point. He can appeal this new jury verdict. Jury verdict. Again, this isn't a judge who's trying to trip him up or be unfair. This was a jury that heard the case and decided this was an appropriate amount to teach this man a lesson. The jury set this number. He can appeal it, but he's going to have to find 83.3 million dollars out of one of his checking accounts and he's going to have to tie it up. He's going to put it into an account that he cannot once it's there. He will not be able to access So, um, even while he walks through the appeal process, he is going to be hurting. He's going to be a hurting puppy. And soon, we don't know how soon, but soon we should be getting a resolution to the fraud trial in New York where he may be banned. He and his sons may be prohibited from doing business in New York for at least five years, if not forever. And that could possibly, some people are estimating, the penalties and fines in that case could be $370 million. Um, So if he looks a little tense these days, if he doesn't smile quite so much, that, uh, that could be why. You know, Nikki Haley, (laughs) Nikki Haley, who has decided that uh, she's going to, um, at least for the little, for the near future, she's going to stay in the race so she can torment him. Nikki, it's okay with me. Go ahead. She, um, she said when it came to this $83 million verdict, she said, you know what? She said, I believe in juries. I believe that juries listen to everything and make the best decisions they can. I believe in the jury. She's edging closer and closer to open criticism of Donald Trump. Some are saying that statement was open criticism. Not quite as open as she could have been. But um, that's what she said. She said, I believe in juries. She said, I believe juries consider all the facts and make the best decision they can. There have been um, some comments made about this whole Trump legal process. We are going to take a break and I'm going to share some of the comments with you when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So I was just talking about the 83.3 million judgment that the jury in the E. Jean Carroll case decided that was the figure. That was the figure necessary uh, to make Donald Trump understand that he can't keep defaming E. Jean Carroll. (sighs) 
Will it? It's going to be tricky to see because he's made a campaign issue of this that, you know, he doesn't know her. He never knew her. uh, She's not his type. So he wouldn't have sexually assaulted her because, yeah, that's what people choose. Um, Sexual assault is a power move. It isn't a sexual move. Anywho, he's uh, talked about how he's made this part of his campaigning, how he doesn't know this woman and wouldn't have assaulted her even if he did know this woman. So it's going to be real tricky for him to stop talking about this. But if he doesn't, if he doesn't, the lawyer for E. Jean Carroll is a woman uh, by the name of um, Kaplan. And she has shown no fear about taking on Trump again. Because remember, they had the first judgment, and then he went out and he repeated the charges, and so they went back in. Roberta Kaplan is not the least bit intimidated by Donald Trump. Frankly, nor should she be, really. So it's going to be real interesting to see if he can keep his mouth shut on this one. And what, if anything, he will say if he is asked about it. Uh, Neil Cattell is an MSNBC legal expert. And uh, as you might imagine, this was a big part of um, their discussions. And uh, Neil Cattell had an interesting observation, not only about this particular jury that slammed him with $83.3 million, but juries in general and how they react to Donald Trump. Listen to this. If I were one of Trump's criminal attorneys right now, I'd be terrified at what happened today because it's not the amount of damages, the $83 million that's concerning, as much as it shows how much ordinary people, juries, don't trust Donald Trump. They don't believe him. And you also saw the way Donald Trump acted in court. I mean, you can't storm out of court or mutter under your breath or act like an entitled toddler in a criminal trial. It's not going to work before the jury. And so I think if you're one of the Trump's lawyers right now facing the criminal stuff, you're going to double down on your attempt to try and delay, delay, delay this thing until after the election with the hope he can win and undo those prosecutions. This well, civil case, by the way, can't be undone. Even if he wins the presidency, you know, this judgment will stand. He'll have to obviously try and reverse it on appeal, but he can't order the Justice Department to drop it. Did you hear that? Isn't that good news? He can't order the Justice Department to drop it. Now, here's something really interesting. Um, The judge in this case said to the jury, you're free. You have all of your legal responsibilities have been discharged. But if I were you, I wouldn't tell anybody that I was on this jury. I wouldn't tell anybody. I wouldn't post it on social media. I wouldn't give any interviews. I'm just saying you are free. You can do whatever you want to do. But this is just a piece of advice. Isn't that interesting? Um, 
Neil Cattell was on with Alex Wagner on MSNBC, and they talked about, she asked him about this very unusual statement. Listen to this. Judge Kaplan, the judge in this case, told the jury, my advice to you is that you never disclose that you were on this jury. First of all, Neil, how unusual is it for a judge to say something like that to a jury? And, I mean, if you're a member of the jury... Talk to me about how extraordinary that position is in the age of Trump. In a quarter century of practicing, Alex, I've never heard a statement like that from any judge. Um, It just doesn't exist. And it just demonstrates just how far out of the norm Donald Trump is and what he does to people who call him out and hold him liable. And so Gene Carroll has to fear, you know, the jury has to fear And this judge is not like some wild-eyed lefty judge. This is one of the most respected judges in the country, Judge Kaplan. I don't think he's considered political in any way, shape, or form. And for him to say that, I think, is pretty extraordinary. For him to say that is pretty extraordinary. The judge knows what the... Far, far right, most radical supporters of Donald Trump are capable of. If that wasn't a warning that you better be careful, you better stay safe. I don't know what is. So we wait for the decision. Now, remember, in the the next decision that we're going to get is going to be the amount of money he owes in New York um, for fraudulently conducting business. Um, He has been... This isn't a trial in New York to decide whether or not there has been fraud. The fact that there have been there has been fraud has already been established. That's that's all set. We know that there's fraud. The question is what should be the fine and the punishment? That is the one that people are saying could really hit Trump where he lives. I mean, the rest of this stuff, the stuff in Georgia, even the Jack Smith stuff. He's having um, political hay with, you know, talking about how it's all, you know, the the Biden administration coming after him and uh, the stuff in Florida and the stuff in D.C., that is stuff coming through the DOJ. If Donald Trump were still in the appeals process after being found guilty in either place and became president, he could essentially just negate those. He's already said the DOJ is going to be his weapon of retribution. But... The case in Georgia and the case in New York, this is all this is all state court. 
And his whole identity is that he is this successful New York businessman. And if they take that away from him, I think that's going to be a body blow. I absolutely feel that it's going to be a body blow. So no date for sure when we're going to get the results on that one. We just wait. But I'm a little leery of the voters who uh, tell reporters and tell pollsters that they support Trump, but if there was, um, if he was found guilty, that that would affect their support of him. I think that's how they want to think of themselves. But I think that if indeed he is found guilty, <clears throat> his supporters will find a way to justify it. Of course they will. You know they will. They absolutely will. Oh, well, you know, yeah, I said that, but but it was this, it was that, it was, it wasn't fair. <clears throat> Donald Trump on the political front is apparently also, you know, I've talked about how Nikki Haley is getting under his skin. Well, apparently, <clears throat> a social media, the presidential account, and the, if you want to f- have some real fun, follow the Biden-Harris headquarters, Biden-Harris HQ, because that's the Dark Brandon account. And that's the one that's been taking sound bites of his and um, making fun of them. Oh, my God. It's such a delightful account. And here's, um, here's the interesting interesting thing. The regular Joe Biden account has started reposting the Biden-Harris headquarters stuff. So the regular Joe Biden account is now uh, doubling down. There is another man you should be following by the name of Keith Boykin. He's got a book coming out, and I am working to try to get him as an interview on our on our show, but Keith Boykin, B O Y K I N, um, and he is he posts rebuttals to things that candidates say, and also reminds us of facts we should remember. Um, Here is one of his most recent posts: Trump now has ninety one felony counts, eleven aides convicted. Four indictments, two impeachments, 83.3 million defamation verdict, $25 million fraud judgment, $5 million sexual assault verdict, $1.6 million tax fraud conviction, a university shutdown, a charity shutdown, and is on trial for fraud. Lest we forget, this is the man that Republicans want to see in the White House. Dear God in heaven. Do they care so little for this country? Are they so afraid? Apparently so. Let's take a break. We're going to focus on New Hampshire when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
We are joined by, now by Colin Booth, who is the political correspondent at Granite Post, which is a Courier Newsroom publication in the great state of New Hampshire. Hey, Colin, how are you? Hey, Jim. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. <clears throat> so after the New Hampshire primary, did you just like want to run away to a Caribbean island and drink umbrella drinks for about a month? <laughs> Uh, something like that. You know, I, I was really surprised. It, it's not my first rodeo. I've been here for a few primary now. And I was, uh, you know, you, you forget how stressful it is, uh, until, you know, until after it's over and you're like, whoa, this, I can't believe I went through that again. Yeah. So for my listeners, tell them what you mean when you say that you went through it. What was covering it like? When did it start? Where did you go? Um, tell us, tell us all the good stuff. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Well, it, you know, it's it's a long ramp up. It's kind of like um, what they say about uh, how you cook frogs. You, you know, if you throw them in a, a, a boiling pot, they'll jump right out. But uh, you know, if you're in there for the long haul, you get boiled alive. Uh, which is how I felt afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just. It, it, you know, especially the last few weeks, you know, it, it does get crazy, especially the last month. Um, you know, we had just a, a huge number of people coming into the state left and right. We had, you know, major uh, Obama, uh, Biden cabinet officials coming in. We had, um, you know, we had fundraisers from Republicans from all over the country. We had Marjorie Taylor Greene here. I mean, you know, and then on Election Day, I mean, you've got the biggest hotel in the state. It becomes media central. Um, every major network basically occupies a restaurant or a, or a convention hall, and they turn it into a, a television studio. And uh, you've got uh, and you've got celebrities coming in. You've got every major <laughs> media figure you could shake a stick at. It's just it's just a wild, wild scene. You really got to be here to just understand. It. It's crazy. What, uh, what celebrities did you see? Well, I, I, I'll tell you, on Election Day itself, um, I mean, I, I guess my standard of celebrity might be a little whacked because I'm, you know, a political reporter. But uh, we had we had George Santos coming in. <gasps> and I was like, what? A, like, what? Really? He, he doesn't even. Yeah, he was here on Election Day. Totally wild. Um, and I was covering I was covering the one of the, uh, you know, victory parties. For one of the for, for the the Biden writing campaign, and I saw it on somebody texted me his picture, and I was like, man, I wish I just had ninety seconds to ask that guy a few questions. Like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. What? I um, mean, it's just crazy. Uh, why? I mean, did somebody invite him? Was he going to speak? Did anybody talk to him? Did anybody pay attention to him? <laughs> Oh, I mean, people always pay attention to him, right? I mean, he's he's just such a, a caricature, uh, total total, you know, uh, total weirdo. Um, but yeah, he he said uh, his his reasoning was that he he was uh, a supporter of Donald Trump and he registered for the Donald Trump victory party like anybody else could, and he just showed up like a citizen. So. I, I, I think he was just trying to stay a little relevant. You know, he was trying to get his name out in the headlines. Um, How were people reacting you know, I think to he's him? A big Trump supporter. Did they like? Uh, did know, they act like he was a normal human being? <laughs> no, I mean not at all. Because he's not right. Um, no, he he. 
they they gawked, um, and he would, I think reporters were taken so off guard by his presence. You know, the, the, a lot of people were just like, "What the hell are you doing here? What's going on? What is <laughs> what is this? Uh, what is this about?" Um, and I think people were like, you know, and he he was pretty open about it. He's like, "I'm a big Donald Trump supporter," which makes a lot of sense because. And I think he's, uh, you know, he also just craves attention desperately. So he was there just trying to stay in the, the limelight. And he, wow. he did, you know, he was a little all did he place. Did he seem to be there at the behest of um, Trump? Did anybody that was in the Trump campaign acknowledge him? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he was just... I think he was just a rogue operator. Um, but you never know, you know? Like, uh, the Trump... The Trump campaign is uh, very large. It's got a lot of interesting, diverse voices. And it was interesting, actually, you know, <clears throat> they had this this one guy, Dylan Quattrucci, excuse me. He's the former deputy uh, state director for the Trump campaign here in New Hampshire. <clears throat> and he showed up to the Trump party and he was there was actually video of him being led out of the party. Um, because he took video or he took, he took some photos of Trump's attorney, um, at the party. And she was supposed to be, she had already told the judge on the case that she was working, which we all know how that turned out, um, that she, she had gotten COVID and couldn't, she had to (gasps) delay the trial because she was ill. And so this guy, this, this former state director for the Trump campaign, who he himself was fired for, uh, there's some threatening, some videos threatening police on January 6th. Um, he he was ceremoniously kicked out of this party for taking pictures of this lawyer who shouldn't have been there. So, oh, was, my, mean, my, my. Somebody <laughs> caught <laughs> not being completely <laughs> honest. Right? Yep. I mean, totally why. And there's just so many instances like that. You know, the the last 48 hours of the New Hampshire primary, just wild stuff always happening. Wow. So um, when you were covering the primary and you heard um, Nikki Haley speak, what did you think of that? And how did New Hampshireites react to her? Well, we actually we go by granite staters here. Oh, that's sorry. I'm I, sorry. That, well, that's a lot easier to say than New Hampshireites. <laughs> I know. That's. I think that's why we like it because New Hampshireites <laughs> look so weird. I mean, when you write it down, it looks extra weird. But yeah, I mean, Nikki Haley. Um, you know, it's it's really it's a very interesting thing. You know, our governor, uh, Chris Sununu. He really set up expectations a little too high for her here. He predicted a big Nikki Haley win or a narrow Wait Nikki a Haley win at one point. He actually mm-hmm. said not just she's going to do great, people are going to love her. He said she was going to beat Donald Trump. Yes, he did oh, say that. Oh, come on, Mr. Sununu. I know. <laughs> well, you know, if you know if you know Chris Sununu, you know he uh, he he tends to get oh, get a little excited sometimes, and he can uh, he, he tends to talk out of two sides of his mouth. So it wasn't too too long after he said that that he had to kind of walk it back and say, well, we think she's going to be really strong. Um, you know, back when when Ron DeSantis was in the race, that he was predicting that she would come in a close second. Now she did come in second uh, after after Ron DeSantis dropped out, but 
she did not beat Donald Trump as he predicted. He was, I, I think he came out of this looking pretty bad himself. It's just an well, embarrassing you know, thing. It's embarrassing that's look, interesting you know? because a lot of people were very impressed with with the showing she made. I mean, nobody outside of Sununu, I think nobody expected her to beat Trump. The question was, you know, would there be a significant portion of the voting public that she would capture? And I I thought, she, you know, all things considered, she did reasonably well. What did you think? Well, it's I mean, it, it, it depends on the context, right? I mean, so Sununu created this situation here. And a lot of people paid attention to what he was saying because he was stumping for her very hard. And he created this expectation for a long time that she was going to win. And so when it looked like she wasn't, I think that really disappointed a lot of kind of voters here in the state. They said, oh, OK, well, she can't win. What's the point? So I think that especially among Republicans, you really saw support for her drop off once polling came back that she was going to like not just not win, but but not win by a large margin. Um, and, you know, if you look among a, a Republican, you know, registered Republican, she did very poorly among Republicans. Now, she did relatively well among independent voters, especially Republican conservative leading independent voters here in the state. And independent voters make up the largest voting bloc of voters in New Hampshire. But she didn't dramatically overperformed like she expected to, or at least like she hoped she would. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, you know, just, she couldn't get, uh, she couldn't get the dub. She couldn't get the win um, from, from what she got. You know, we are hearing about how uh, Florida's Ken Griffin um, said he was going to get behind her financially, how the Coke political pack uh, came out very publicly and said that they were going to back her. Did was there anything about her campaign in New Hampshire that led you to believe that her campaign had deep pockets? Oh, sure. Um, so, yeah, Americans for Prosperity is Coke Network. Um, so they have a huge presence here. They are a, a, a very significant force in state politics to the point that they really are um I would say integral to the state Republican Party is a basic operation. Without them, the state Republican Party here wouldn't have a field program. I mean, they kind of they kind of are the field program for the Republican Party here. So they have, and and they pretty early on declared their complete endorsement and support for her. So in in the sense of resources, that was um, that was you know a huge a huge financial gain for her in the state. Not to mention the governor, you know, the governor endorsement. I mean, he did fundraisers for her. He he directed all kinds of support her way. It's hard to even put a dollar figure on the kind of support he provided. Um, but she, and, and, you know, her ad spending here was enormous. I mean, she, I think she outspent Donald Trump here by, you know, over $10 million. Um, and, you know, Ron DeSantis didn't have any, and that's just in television, um, you know, just, I mean, a huge amount of television investment on her part. Uh, we didn't see any other candidate come close. So, yeah, I mean, obviously she had tremendous financial backing, tremendous institutional backing, uh, but, you know, I mean, it just, it wasn't even close to enough. So, wow. 
it's it really goes to show you, um, you know, how, how the voters here thought of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cullen, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the New Hampshire governor race and also some of the robocalls that were deep fakes that circulated during the New Hampshire primary. I'm talking to Colin Booth, political correspondent at the Granite Post. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Colin Booth, political correspondent at the Granite Post, which is the uh, Courier Newsroom publication in New Hampshire. Um, There is a governor's race that you have been um, uh, writing about and uh, talking about. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, so we've been talking about Chris Sununu. He has uh, really been quite the force here in New Hampshire politics for a number of years. He has announced he will not be seeking another term of the governorship here in New Hampshire. And that has kind of opened up the race in a very interesting way. We've got uh, two amazing Democratic candidates. We've got two Republican candidates here uh, in, in New Hampshire, one of them is Kelly Ayotte, a former U.S. senator. And uh, the other one is Chuck Morris. He's a former state Senate leader. And um, it's it's just it's a fascinating race. It's a tight race. Kelly Ayotte is on the Republican side, kind of up. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think we're seeing a lot of weakness among these candidates compared to the Democrats. And so, you know, what do you mean? Kristen Ernan here. Well, they're just they're both they both have long records of of supporting, you know, broad abortion bans. And abortion has been just a huge, very salient issue in state politics here. Republicans under Sununu passed the statewide abortion ban um, that is fairly restrictive. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, we we've we've watched a lot of statewide elections and and local elections, special elections, and municipal elections here, where abortion has really come to the fore as a very important issue. And you look at where these Republicans stand, and it's just and it's not it's not good. Uh, their their records are pretty clear that they've supported very broad, very imposing, you know, federal level abortion bans, extremely restrictive. And then we've got, um, you know, the, the leading person in the race, Kelly Ayotte. She's got all these deep ties to private equity firms. I mean, these are the kind of firms that we see, you know, that are really pricing the middle class out of American homes. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, you know, it's just a, a major, major weakness on her part. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how they bring these weaknesses to the race um, as we kind of get closer to November. Do the Democratic, you mentioned two Democratic candidates, do they look strong to you? Yeah, they're very strong. So New Hampshire, we don't have a uh, a lieutenant governor. We have something called an executive council. It's a five-member body that does a lot of the functions of what a lieutenant governor would do in another state. And we've got so one person from there running. Her name is Cindy Warmington. She's wonderful executive counselor. And then we have the former mayor of Manchester, New Hampshire. Manchester is is the largest city in the state. And she's she's done a, a pretty, you know, remarkable job getting the city through COVID and and um, you know, just modernizing the city. So they're 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 neck and neck. Uh, they are two really strong candidates who are, you know, we're we're looking to see 
kind of who moves ahead. It, it's a very exciting race. Everyone's you know keeping an eye on it. It's, it feels like a long slog right now <laughs> <laughs> because the primary is pretty close to election day. But yeah, we are um, you know we're just keeping an eye on how that race is going. But you know again these Republican candidates you know it's 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 really very interesting for. Democrats statewide here because Republicans, which scenario they've, they've they've kind of been under Republican leadership in the governor's office for a pretty long time. Um, I, I think he's on his fourth term in office now. So Democrats haven't held that office for a while. So this is a, a really unique opportunity for, for Democrats to kind of get that office back. Since Republicans wow. seem to be fielding pretty weak candidates. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's actually a Republican trifecta in the state legislature here right now. We've got uh, a, a very slim majority of Republicans in the House and then a slightly less slim in the, the Senate. And it's, and it's a shame because it's actually, if you go back to the, to the election in 2022, Democrats in the House, the Senate, the state Senate, and the Executive Council Democrats actually won the popular vote in every single one of those bodies in the state. But because of gerrymandering, the way that Republicans have so badly gerrymandered the state legislative districts here, Republicans still hold the majority. It, hmm. It's a real shame. Um, but it's it's looking the state has been trending more Democratic for a number of years now. And so we are kind of just approaching a point where, you know, Hopefully, those gerrymanders, you know, because nobody wants unfair elections. So mm-hmm. we're getting to a point where those gerrymanders are kind of becoming less effective over time. Well, that's good news. Right. Um, and, you know, we had a Speaker of the House uh, here in Illinois. Well, he's currently under indictment, but, you know, that's Illinois. Um, in his early in his career... <laughs> Uh, he was a member of the state legislature, and we had a very gerrymandered state. And he l- looked at the districts very, very closely, and he figured out the ones where the mm, where there was the most wiggle room. And he focused on those districts. And didn't he get Democrats elected? He put like tremendous resources into those districts that he felt were a little wobbly and he turned them and the Democrats eventually took hold of the state and never looked back. So even with gerrymandering, it is possible to make some to make some inroads. And I sure hope of uh, that happens in New Hampshire. Hey, I want to talk to you about these robocalls, these these fake robocalls that people got during the presidential primary. Tell me about those. Yeah, it's it's scary, you know. And I think for a lot of people, it uh, really was was quite eye opening on the dangers of this this new emerging technology. You know, this this AI. Um, that is so accessible to so many people, you know, it, it, basically what happened was um, someone, we don't know who yet, um, created a synthetic voice for Joe Biden. Um, and it said, you know, it started out malarkey. Don't vote for me. Your vote is important. Wait to vote for me in November. And so there's a lot of different theories on what the 
nefarious party behind this was trying to do? Were they, you know, trying to get independence to vote for Nikki Haley? Were they trying to, to, to change, send a message about his, you know, Joe Biden's support in the state? It's, it's really not clear what the motivations were, but what is clear is that, you know, this went out to, you know, thousands of people across the state, um, and, and, you know, a voice that sounded just like the president telling them not to vote. Wow. Um, and it's scary. I mean, it's it's it really is um, very disturbing for a lot of people here. And almost immediately, you know, everyone came out against it. The, uh, the attorney general here said there would be an investigation. Um, there is, you know, the, the governor said they would be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. So, I mean, we're waiting to hear, you know, what the update is, because you know, presumably this was done through one of these services. There's not, you know, the, the, there's not a ton of services that can do this stuff. Uh, you know, the, the scheduling of robocalls and things like that. So hopefully we're able to figure out who did this quickly. I mean, this became international news um, all over the planet because this is just, you know, I think a lot of people are worried that this is the first step. You know, yeah. this is, I mean, and this is something that can be done very quickly, very cheaply. Um, I mean, all of this could probably be done from a laptop. So oh. I think a lot of people are very concerned that this is just the beginning that we're going to start to see even more and more of these fakes in local elections. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a pretty big concern for a lot of people. Um, thankfully, you know, I, I don't think we saw any actual Result of this, you know, Joe Biden did extremely well in in the writing campaign here in New Hampshire. Uh, he vastly overperformed, so I don't think there's any reason to conclude that you know people wow. were duped and not you know at a at a, a large level. But I think there is a, just a, a, you know a general concern that this is bad, and you know if this is just the beginning. You know how how bad could this get? Well, I think it could get very bad, and I think that. I think that it's going to be I think it's going to be vital for the state of New Hampshire to get to the bottom of this. I think, you know, we need to find out where it came from, how to stop it. I mean, this could this could be something that we see over and over and over again. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think we're going to see and there's already legislation. It's interesting. There's already legislation kind of going through the House here that dealt with these kinds of incidents, you know, more like sanctioned use of AI in, in political campaigns and political advertisements. But yeah, this is, this is, I mean, incredibly illegal. This is, you know, I, I, I do think they're going to, once they do find this person, kind of try and make an example of them because clearly this is, this is, could, is something that could spin out of control pretty quickly if we don't get a yeah. handle on it. And what worries me is somebody unleashing a, some kind of deep fake campaign, like in, in in the days before an election, where it's you might not have the time to react and counter it and get the word out that it's not real. That to me is especially is especially terrifying. I mean, it, if it comes out. You know, if these deep fakes come out, you know, a month or so in advance, you know, they, you know, people can call them out. But if it comes out a few days before an election, who knows 
how we could be confused. Hey, um, Colin, we, we have a little bit of time left, and I want to get your take. Ron DeSantis, after Iowa, his campaign made a big deal about, hey, he's got the money to be in it through New Hampshire. He's got the money to stick with it through South Carolina. And seemingly within about 48 hours of that statement, he decided not to go to New Hampshire. Was there something about his campaign in New Hampshire that caused him to bail? Yeah, you know, I think if, if you look at the, the hires he made here, they were really, really bad. He he actually ended up hiring a number of individuals who are in Republican leadership here in New Hampshire. <clears throat> these are the same people who are charged. I know it's 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 very interesting. Uh, these are the same people who are charged with kind of winning state rep races here. They've done a, a really bad job of kind of getting over the finish line on those. Um, and they're the same people who are kind of pushing these very extreme, you know, Republican bills here in the state. Um, they they seem to have really made Ron DeSantis like a, a hero of theirs. There's a, there's a number of them, including the, the Republican House Majority Leader Jason Osborne here, was a huge early endorser and backer of of Ron DeSantis. Brought a lot of his friends onto the campaign there and. I mean, I think the results speak for themselves. I mean, they, the campaign completely fell apart here in New Hampshire. Oh. Um, by the end, he was polling in the you know, low single digits. And he started very high. He started in New Hampshire beating Donald Trump at one point, months and months and months ago. He was, he was the top contender. And, I mean, the more people saw of Ron DeSantis and the more they saw of his campaign here, I mean, it was it, it just kept falling apart more and more and more. And you got to really look at this team here. Uh, it, it's kind of remarkable how much they were, <laughs> how much damage they were able to do. Wow. <clears throat> and it how does that happen? I know we only have a few seconds left, but how does somebody hire a, a People who are basically Republican operatives, you know, how does I've heard that, you know, his campaign was very poorly run. And every time there was a decision to be made, it was a poor decision. But man, oh, man, this is just it's just jaw dropping. Yeah. It is just jaw dropping. You know, I'm sure when his is. wife Casey runs, Colin, it'll be different. I'm sure they'll fix all these problems when uh, when we have I, Casey on the ballot, Casey DeSantis. Yeah. Colin, thank you so much. Money in my wallet for that one. (laughs) Thank you. It was great talking (laughs) to you. Colin Booth is the political correspondent at the Granite Post. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am joined now by the lovely Richard Chu. You hear him every Sunday. On the family meeting here on WCPT. Richard, how are you? Hey, Joan. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I should, uh, for those of you listening, I want to give you a little programming note. Richard and I are waiting for Mayor Brandon Johnson to come out and uh, speak live. You may have heard me at the beginning of the show saying that a lot of the uh, migrants who are being held uh, at shelters that their time to be in those shelters is uh, coming to a close. They are supposed to be um, moved out of those shelters, evicted. Um, I believe it is this coming Thursday, 1,900 are going to be evicted and another nearly 1,000 
uh, are supposed to be evicted on Friday. So we think the mayor is going to come out and speak about that. Richard and I are going to try to take that live as it happens. And uh, then we can uh, discuss whatever it is uh, that the mayor has to say to us. Uh, Richard, have you guys talked about the migrant crisis on the family meeting? We have, we have, we have not um, in the last couple of weeks since we've been back live on the air. But before the holiday, we definitely did in December. Um, and um, you know, it, it, it's it's a crisis. And I think when I was on with you um, right before Christmas, and we, you and I talked about it a little bit, um, I, I recall saying that we feel that part of this. Republican debacle, specifically spearheaded by Greg Abbott, um, is really to create some hell and drama here in Chicago with the DNC being here this coming summer. Um, And I don't think that that's um, hyperbole. um, But as it relates to all the other pieces of it, there's a lot of things that are going on, and we do talk about it. A lot of folks are, are, are pointing fingers. It's a, it's an awful tough situation, uh, and I, I don't know what the singular answer answer is because, you know, these are human beings that were essentially kidnapped and then displaced in another part of the United States. That being here in Chicago, so we talk about it, Joan, but not from the perspective of what, knowing what the right answer is. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think anybody necessarily knows what the right answer is, and. Um, And the thing that I think what I'd like to see happen, I mean, there was that uh, problem where um, Mayor Brandon Johnson was going to put in a tent city over at a location in Brighton Park. The land was found to be uh, too toxic, too contaminated. So the state of Illinois, which was going to supply the money, said no, no, no. And then there's been a bit of a back and forth between Brandon Johnson and J.B. Pritzker, you know, sort of Brandon saying, well, you know, it's your money, so you figure it out. And J.B. Pritzker saying, well, yeah, but we really can't just come in and to the city of Chicago and take over. You know, we need your you to be able to sign off on this kind of stuff and and to be in, involved. You know, I would like to see people have been talking about the 50 schools that Rahm Emanuel closed. Those schools have a cafeteria. You could feed people. They have showers because they had phys ed. Uh, They have restrooms. Um, It would seem that there could be some sort of relatively easy measure to get a vacant school up to snuff. And and here's the thing. If If we do this right, once we have this migrant situation and the migrants moved out, you know, housing for the unhoused, extra what, shelter you, space, low-income housing. I, I mean, it's like halfway there. about that before. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry, John. You, 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 that, that, that got me excited on the topic. <laughs> you and I have talked about the last, your last two sentences. You and I have talked about that before as it relates to um, dealing with and managing the, the, you know, the homeless or the houseless um, um, a challenge problem academic we have not only here in Chicago but across the country, and so where we got vacant schools, it's a great, it's a, it's a great, great, it's a big step. It's not just a baby step. That's a big step because you've got a certain amount of infrastructure already in place, and since these these 
folks, these human beings have been dropped in our lap by this criminal in Texas and the one in Florida. We, you know, it's a sensitive issue. It's a tough issue. There's all different pieces to it. But in the meantime, let's use structures that we already have. And the city owns them in part with, you know, the county and to some extent the state. So it's not a, it's not a difficult um, let's go find places. We have those places. And um, it, would, it would be a great use of the space. It's relatively safe. Um, they're all, all these schools are in areas where there is a police district that can patrol the areas for, to keep that part in, of the element in check. But, man, I, um, I don't get why they haven't done that yet. I don't know if there's anything um, that is in our bylaws, or if I'm using the right words, or if there's anything in our charter, is probably the better term, of, with the city of Chicago, that we couldn't do that. I, I can't see why. And then, like you said, it's a next first, it's a next step to helping those who are previous to migrants coming to Chicago homeless. Um, and it moves us in a, in, a, in a better direction as a city, a county, and a state. I think and that, that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm repeating what you're saying, but I agree with It's because I agree with you. One thing that Greg Hines always says when I talk to him, Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business, <clears throat> he says that, you know, we all know Brandon Johnson is a hell of a speaker. You know, he can make you feel the feels when he talks to you. And one thing that he has not done is really, I mean, he's, you know, he's been to a lot of community places. He's cut a lot of ribbons. He's, you know, it's not that he's not out and about, but he hasn't just like made a speech saying, you know what, this is what I want to do. And yeah, it's going to be hard and I'm going to need help, but this is who we are. And I want to take care of these people and I want to do it right and, you know, I, I need to get people behind me. It isn't going to be perfect, but it's going to be better than nothing. He hasn't basically what Greg Hines says is that he hasn't really used the bully pulpit to win people over to his yeah. side. And I'm, I'm, I'm really curious as to why, because this is a guy, you know, this isn't a guy who's a stumbling bumbler who bores people to death when he talks. I mean, this is right. a guy that makes people want to get up and raise their hand and sing when he when he talks. And he Let has not involved. used that yeah. ability for not just the migrant crisis, but for all of the of the problems that have been discussed and and. And things that have been going on, he hasn't used those abilities to win people over. And I'm wondering why. I really, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know the answer, the singular answer, and I think it may be multifaceted in terms of the why. Um, there, there may be a part of him that's um, got his finger. I, I'm not going to use that analogy. There may be a part of him that's ready to take the take the jump shot, um, but he, he's looking to make sure that he's not. Um, uh, excluding anybody else in, in in the process, and at this point, that's the best analogy I can give. Uh, he may be getting advice from from his team that's saying to not do any to not do that. But I would think that as mayor, as the leader of the city of Chicago by by title, that he would basically at some point, as the leader, you tell your staff and you tell your advisors and all the rest, even your your donors, listen, this is my call. If I make, if it's not, if it doesn't go over, I need you to support me for taking action. I don't need you to coddle me for not taking action. 
And that's kind of where I'm, I'm in agreement with you. That's box two that we've checked today on our agreement meter. Um, <laughs> I think that I mean, you and I don't disagree a lot, but um, I, and I think that that's one of the things that he, he's he's about he, he's overdue. Yes, I would I, I would agree. And and I, again, like I said, I don't know the singular answer as to why he has not yet. Um, so I, I he's got to do that. And it, and the word I will use is galvanize. Um, there's, it, this, there's a disparate parts feeling to what's happening with this scenario. And he needs to galvanize using all the powers that he has as mayor um, to make that statement. He needs to have that. Um, he needs to have that rallying press conference and make it big. He needs to have it in a, you know, in a, some place is going to hold a thousand people and bring folks in and say, listen, this is what we're about to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, and, and I think if there's anything that's stopping him from doing that, it may be because of the coordinated effort that's required with the county and the state that's preventing him from that message because can he back it up if he doesn't have the support of Preckwinkle and Pritzker? I, I don't know. I'm just looking at kind of what I understand about the, 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 the movement of politics in in our region, we'll call it our city, our, our county, our state. That might be the reason why, Joan, uh, or, or a couple possibilities as I, as I see it. Because I thought the same thing that you just said. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, Paul, I want to check with you. Um, the live feed is still up, but still no Brandon Johnson? Okay. I'm wondering if we should take a quick break um, since we might stay with Brandon for a while. Paul, what do you think? Okay, let's let's do that. Richard Chu and I will be right back uh, right after this. Brandon Johnson has just come out to speak about the migrant crisis. Let's go to it live. To our city, 500 of which arrived since I took office. And just today, the Texas governor was gloating about sending more than 100,000 asylum seekers to sanctuary cities the vast majority of whom have no idea where they are going and what resources they will have access to. In response, my administration and our city have stepped up to meet this moment. We have stood up 28 temporary emergency shelters. We've done this across the entire city of Chicago. We provide over 300,000 meals per week. DFSS and OEMC have created an entire infrastructure and led the oversight of this system. This particular mission has grown exponentially over the past year. CDPH has led the way on healthcare coordination, providing thousands of health screenings and vaccinations and healthcare triage under very challenging, difficult conditions. We've done this in partnership with the Cook County health department, and other medical providers. We have worked with the faith community, the business community, the philanthropic community, labor, all levels of government to provide care for our new arrivals. We're working to help create a pathway to self-sufficiency and independence. This has been unprecedented. This challenge has certainly been a weight in our city. But the truth of the matter is, This has been a challenge for every municipality and every state government that is managing this crisis all over the country. In Massachusetts, for example, 
the state government established a statewide limit of 7,500 beds for 100 cities. Denver has instituted a 14-day limit for single individuals and 42 stays for families, making adjustments for weather just as we have. On February 6th, Denver will be discharging families again after this pause. New York instituted a 60-day limit for families and a 30-day limit for single individuals on October 16th and began discharging migrants from shelters on January 9th. They are continuing to do so as they grapple with nearly 70,000 new arrivals in their shelter system. Sanctuary cities across the country have done the most. We have done everything possible to welcome asylum seekers, to make sure we're centering it around their humanity and doing it with some dignity. And while staying within their financial constraints, Chicago is no different. We initially instituted the 60-day limit in conjunction with the state's announcement of additional resources for resettlement and case management because our plan for temporary emergency shelter was never meant as a long-term housing solution. But we want to give every person and every single family that has come to our city enough time to process their work authorization, find housing, start a new life in our great city. So we have made the decision to extend the shelter state policy based on original exit dates from mid-January through the end of March. We will continue to assess this developing situation as we move through these winter months. We will also continue to advocate for Congress to find federal support and to have a federal response to this federal issue. But we will not stop working locally with our partners to find solutions to how we manage this humanitarian crisis. And with that, now I'm happy to bring to the podium DFSS Commissioner Brandi Kanasi. She will speak to more specifics around this policy. Commissioner. Thank you, Mayor, for that introduction. You're welcome. Hello, my name is Brandi Kanazi, and I'm Commissioner for Chicago Department of Family and Support Services. As part of the New Arrivals mission, DFSS, in partnership with our city partners, continues to operate 28 shelters across the city, supporting nearly 14,000 new arrivals. In the last eight months, we have built a comprehensive model without a blueprint and little federal support, allowing us to offer enhanced case management, public benefits, legal services, and medical care. <clears throat> Since last summer, approximately 11,500 people from our shelters have resettled through the state's housing assistance program led by Catholic Charities, and 4,100 individuals have outmigrated from the shelter system to connect with friends and family, living out the goals they came to Chicago when they came here. As of last week, 2,800 applications have been submitted to the U.S. Custom, Citizen, and Immigration Office, and nearly 1,011 applications have been approved for work authorizations. The emergency shelter system was built on the premise that shelter stays would be short-term as we work with our county, state, 
federal and nonprofit partners to help new arrivals develop a plan and get on their feet. Due to the extreme cold weather Chicago experienced over the last two weeks, we extended the exit dates for new arrivals who were set to leave shelter throughout the month of January. The new 60-day policy is as follows. Residents who have an exit date between January 16th and February 29th will be given a 60-day extension starting from their original exit date. For example, if an individual was scheduled to leave on January 16th, their new exit date is March 16th. There are approximately 5,673 people who fall into this category. Residents who received a 60-day notice and were scheduled to exit shelter between March 1st and March 28th will receive a 30-day extension from their planned exit date. There are approximately 2,119 individuals who fall into this category. Anyone new who enters the shelter system starting today will receive the standard 60-day notice. Finally, new arrivals who entered the shelter system between August 1st and November 16th, 2023 are eligible for the state's three-month rental assistance program. There are approximately 5,910 individuals who fall into this category. They will begin to receive their 60-day notice starting February 1st. There were 8,800 individuals in this group in November, and currently 2,890 have already exited the shelter system. As a reminder, anyone who entered the shelter system after November 16th is not eligible for the state's housing resettlement program. To support residents in thinking about their onward movement and what it could look like at the end of their 60-day stay, shelter staff will roll out a multi-step process, including checkpoint assessments. These conversations include questions about access to resources and networks of support beyond shelter. Checkpoint assessments will take place at least two times after the 60-day notice is given one two weeks into their shelter stay, and the second two weeks before their exit date. Screening for the extension eligibility would occur at the second checkpoint. Only if residents state they anticipate needing shelter beyond their current exit state. As previously shared when we rolled out the 60-day policy, the general categories for extension that are eligible include progress to permanent or stable housing, severe weather conditions, disability, pregnancy or maternal health, gender-based violence, medical isolation, and bereavement. All efforts will be made to limit disruption and mitigate harm, especially for school-age children. Prior to the school year, we work closely with the Chicago Public Schools to enroll children this school year, and we will continue to partner with them through this process. Now, I would like to pass it to Dr. Ige, Commissioner for the Chicago Department of Public Health. That was uh, Brandon Johnson, Mayor of the City of Chicago, talking about what is going to happen to the Almost uh, 3,000 migrants who were due to uh, have their shelter status expire this week. And uh, one of the people who was involved in uh, implementing the program. Well, uh, Richard Chu from the family meeting uh, joins me. 
Richard, I think the mayor just did kind of what I was saying he should do. It seemed kind of like a, a hey, you know, it. we're good people and this is how we work kind of speech. What did you think? Yeah, I think he um, that's why I was saying earlier. First of all, yes, I agree with you. And secondly, that's why I was saying I think that he just had he had to get his footing on this one because of the the um, the, the impact, if, if you will, that the county and the state has. And, of course, um, the federal entities that that you know, have a, have a say in the matter. So um, he did kind of bring in, and I'll put it this way, he did kind of say, look, the, the, you, all of you all got to do your part too. Um, and and meaning those other, those other parts of the, of the system, the, 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 the county, the state and the federal entities. So, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping that he can go even bigger with that, um, that, that, that message. Um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So. Yeah, uh, I mean, it wasn't the big blowout speech that you that you and I were were hoping would take place, but at least it's something. At least he's like getting out there. I mean, he's got to get out in front of this because um, not only uh, you know is this something the situation with the migrants something that's problematic, but you know there are going to be other issues. As a matter of fact. Um, one of the things what I want to talk to you about when we come back after this next break is the issue of transparency. You know, Lori Lightfoot campaigned on bring in the light. And yet once she got in office, it seemed that um, she looked at things a little differently and wanted uh, much more control over information, especially what went out to reporters. And mm-hmm. there have been a couple of things happening with the Johnson administration that I will explain when we come back that seem to give me a feeling that he might be moving in that same direction. Uh, Richard Chu from the family meeting here at WCPT. He and I will be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Richard Chu, who is part of the family meeting with Eric Grant every Sunday, uh, late afternoon, early evening here on WCPT. And we just listened to Brandon Johnson talk about um, what's going to happen with the migrants. Um, I didn't think that they would just be kicked to the curb, especially not in the dead of winter. And indeed, there are arrangements that are going to be made good for the city of Chicago. What is a little more concerning is that there have been reports of um, an effort on the part of Brandon Johnson to not be transparent. I don't know if you saw Bill Conway put out a measure in the Chicago City Council that at least uh, as far as some of the uh, spending um, that's being done uh, for migrants, that anything over a million dollars has to be looked at and voted on by the city council. Um, there has been a move to bury that in the rules committee. Brandon Johnson also was contacted by Paris Schutz over at WTTW, who was doing a story on the poor conditions, poor living conditions at one of the migrant camps. Um, and he requested uh, through the Freedom of Information Act some emails from the Johnson administration, and those emails, when they arrived, were so heavily redacted, so heavily blacked out as to be useless. Paris, being resourceful, got the emails, the same emails, 
from uh, an activist, a community activist who had been involved in the exchange. And they indeed did say about, you know, the bad water and the mold and other um, unhealthy living conditions. And once Paris had the emails and did the story on them, then the city of Chicago released the emails unredacted, which they could have and should have done in the first place. The other uh, concerning thing that I read was published in Shia Kapos, um Illinois Playbook, and that's where a week ago Friday, the mayor wanted to uh, talk to older people about the migrant situation, and instead of talking to them all at once, he apparently brought the older people in in small groups so that they stayed under the number of people meeting that would have triggered the Illinois Open Meetings Act. Um, and you just, you know, you're thinking to yourself, that's just icky. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't really feel good about that. Um, and I'm, you know, there's, a, there's an incident here and an incident there. Uh, but you get too many of these, and it gets to be the same kind of thing that we saw with Lori Lightfoot, that we saw with Rahm Emanuel, you know, stall, stall, um, bury, bury, stonewall if you can. That's not a good look for Brandon Johnson. Yeah, I think that um, what, when, one of the things that I was thinking about while listening to you walk through that is... Um, you know, this is this is the second occasion that we say would say we know about or that came to light. Um, is it a pattern, or is it the subject matter that makes it something that? Um, makes it seem like a pattern. So, for example, yeah, we don't want that to happen. Let's just—I'll just—I'll start with what I think and feel first, and then I'll come back. Yes, we want transparency. We want to know what's going on. We don't want any other other quote unquote BS as it relates to why things didn't get explained to us from the beginning. We're all adults here, um, but at the same time, I asked a question. This and, is kind uh, of my uh, my my counter to this. If there are things that the, the city should be putting, should be making public, these types of meetings and, you know, redacted emails and all that. Um, then right now we should, we being those of us that are, you know, have voices, should let the mayor's office know, listen, this can't happen. You're heading down that, that path that you said you weren't going to be a part of and that others prior to you were a part of. Um, I think that that message needs to, so the, the people that know the people in the administration should let the mayor's office know right now you're heading, you're giving us an indication that that's a direction you're going. If these were a couple of hiccups, okay, great. But if a third time happens and we got to call you, we have to call you out on it. I think that's how we should handle it. Those of us who have a voice, those of us who care so that it doesn't, um, it doesn't become something that then becomes a problem for his administration to function well. Um, I can't, none of us can explain why they didn't send the initial unredacted version out because it wasn't like it was incriminating necessarily. Um, and then as it relates to meeting in groups so that they wouldn't have um, the, the, the mandate uh, guide their direction. I mean, some of that may be considered strategy to, but it doesn't matter. The perception is that they're trying to hide something. So they need to, you know, they, they need to fix those, those miscues. 
um, and, and fix them fast so that, you know, we don't get the wrong impression. I'm not going to, I'm not going to throw the towel in and say, Oh my God, he's already started. He's starting to be like the predecessors. Um, but I will say that, that that the look isn't good. I will. I definitely can agree with that. The look is not good. I agree with you. It hasn't gone too far yet, but for it not to happen, you know, because I it's let's face it, it's human nature. If there's something out there that you think that you're vulnerable on or that doesn't make you or a member of your administration look good, you know, the, your first in- instinct is to is to try to get around it, get around it somehow. But um, for, well, I mean, for the kind of thing you're something. talking about to take place, there has to be somebody in his inner circle that tells him no. That no. says, this yeah. is a bad That's- idea. Look at the big picture. I don't know that that person exists. I got to tell you, uh, Joan, I, this is one of this has been something for most of my adult life. I've said this about anybody that's in a long elected office. And I've, and I've said this about professional athletes, celebrities in terms of, you know, media celebrities. Um, I've said this about businessmen and women that reach a certain level. You have to have the right people around you. And even if you vet and you, and you find out that that's not the right person, you got to get rid of them quickly and put somebody in place. Because if you don't, you go down this path of people saying the things that you want to hear versus what you need to hear. And sometimes hearing what you, you know, it's okay to hear some of the things you want to hear because you might be right. <laughs> Let's hope that that's the case. So you, so you mm-hmm. want to, you want someone to tell you, yeah, you're right. But at the same time, the need to is, is equally important. And, so one of the things that, I mean, I'll just share this with you really quickly because it's, it's kind of a, this is going to kind of circle itself back to CPT. Right now, there are a lot of different messages that are out there in progressive talk. And a lot of it's coming um, from folks like you and me who are similarly, similar minded in how we are approaching the, the things that we need to say to our audiences and to the people that we're trying to give a space so that they can be involved in this process and saving our democracy. Okay. But right now, the other thing that is going on is there's a lot of bad information out there. There's a lot of inaccurate things that are being said. There's a lot of bot driven messaging. And there is a lot of Um, There are a lot of us who aren't going to agree on everything that we say, but at the end of the day, the message has to be that we're all shooting for the same thing, which is to move the country forward. And in our case, to move the city forward. I think that the mayor has got to look at it from that perspective. And so Mm -hmm. the things that he does or doesn't do that give people doubt, which then could turn into reducing his support are the things that he's got to be willing to have someone around him to say, no, that's not a, we probably shouldn't do it that way. We, or if we're going to do it that way, we should be ready to explain why we did it that way. So it's not left to speculation and supposition. And that to me is what the mayor has got to get good at doing right now. If you got to have people around you that are telling you yes all the time, you need to have some people around you that are going to tell you, well, if you're going to do this, we have to be prepared to to talk Mm -hmm. about the fallout Exactly. Do you know what I mean, Joan? I don't see that happening yet with the mayor's uh, team is that dealing with the fallout, they are not quick to the, to the, they're not quick to the, um, to the moment to deal with the fallout of being imperfect as an administration. And this is just kind of how I see it. So 
I, I agree with you. They, they, they can't be, you, you know, they can't really dip their toe too far into this, not being transparent, but if they are going to do it, um, or, and it's not for any scandalous reason, they need to be able to come out and say, here's why we did it this way. Okay. Exactly. And you, you can agree with this or disagree, but this is why we did it and then be able to move forward from it. And I'm waiting for them to be that way as an administration um, on, a, on a handful of issues. So. Yeah. And, you know, <clears throat> it has always been an adage in Chicago that the cover-up is worse than the crime. I think yeah. people will they'd be more readily accept somebody coming out. You know, what would have happened if Rahm Emanuel had released that videotape of the Laquan McDonald shooting and just been like, this happened, this was awful, On nobody wanted this to happen, we are going to investigate, we're going to get to the bottom of it, and I promise you, once we do that, we will share our answers with you. Yeah. I mean, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine yes, ex- yesterday about this. Um, there's so many times when you, you found out that, unfortunately, Rom wasn't as much of a progressive or Democrat as you might think he was. And if he was, it was as, as mayor, he certainly didn't show it by the representative um, body or percentages of people in the city of Chicago. And he, he consistently showed us other than that. And that he was really more like uh, former Governor Rauner was than he was like, you know, um, uh, previous Mayor Daley was as a leader. Uh, I would have preferred that. I, I agree with you. And, you know, and I think that Mayor Johnson, you know, I'm not trying to make any excuses. He's young chronologically, and he's young as a politician. Um, if I were on his team of people, and, and I, w- I said this about President Obama, President Obama and I are four months apart in age, but there's a number of times that I would have said to President Obama, not knowing what's behind the curtain, so I say this respectfully, as a black man, there would have been some things I would have handled differently during his presidency, during his two terms. Just, I, I just would have. And, and I say that because that's my truth. When it comes to Mayor Johnson, I kind of look at the same way. It's like, I, if I were on his team, I'd be the guy saying no. I'd be saying, no, we can't do it that way. Here's why. Here's what the outcome is going to be. Here's what's really at risk. And here's a, here my, here's a potentially better way. But if we're going to do that, we need to be prepared to talk about it from this perspective. And that, I think, is what a lot of our leaders are missing, is the person, male or female, black or white, that's, that they have on their team that's willing to say, no, mm-hmm. that's, a dumb, that's a dumb idea. And here's why it's a dumb idea, but here's a better way to go or a potential better way to go. I think too many of our leaders are too fragile to, in, in that no space to have those persons on their, their team and be able to tell them, Nah, I don't think we need to do that. So I'm hoping that he gets his footing and gets some people around him that are that are going to say certain no's to him um, when it's a thing that can end up being politically and just for the city, not the best move in the world. Um, that's just me, though, Joan. I mean, I, I, I hate to sound like I'm trying to tell these guys how to run the city, but there's some things that I would just I, I would want to have those people around me. Well, you know, what you're saying makes sense. I mean, look at Kirsten Cinema. 
um, you know, she started as a Green Party candidate, and then she got apparently um, swayed by all the corporate money that was coming her way to be more conservative. And by all accounts, everybody she had in her inner circle who was capable or in a position to say, no, that's a bad idea, no, that gradually those people were gotten rid of. And she had yeah. a, an inner circle of people who were just telling her what she wanted to hear. And those people, by, by the accounts of some of the people who were near those people, those people were telling her, oh, you know, you should trash Joe Biden, but stay a Democrat. And, and maybe you'll be the next president because Republicans will like you. And you're still a Democrat, so Democrats will like you. You know, we see you going all the way. And instead of going all the way, she literally destroyed herself. Yep. And, and, and that's that's the downside of having not having um, people there to correct you or to give you truth. I mean, I think that one of the things that um, I respect about um, what I hear about President Biden and Vice President Harris is that, you know, she's capable of playing the rudder for him in a lot of scenarios. And I got the impression that President Biden was that way with President um, uh, Vice President Biden was that way with President Obama. Um, and I think every leader needs that person. Yep. Every leadership every, it needs that person, um, persons, plural, uh, to be there to say, I mean, we, we <laughs> there's a phrase that you and I have joked about. You've heard me say it. You've heard Eric say it. And the phrase is, get your boy. Well, <laughs> or get your girl. And there, there's a certain amount of um, humbleness with that. Is sometimes you got to pull your best friend's coat to say, no, man, you can't do that. Or, or no, girl, you can't do that. And that's what I think is, is, a, is critical for Mayor Johnson right now. Or the other side of that, Mayor Johnson, you need to do this. And here's the outcome of you doing this. Um, and I'm hoping that that is going to make its way into his administration sooner than later. Um, because there's a lot of upside to him taking that position. Um, and it doesn't mean he has to be bombastic about it or any of those things. It means he just has to have the confidence in himself to have the people around him that are going to say yes or no when it's appropriate, when everybody else is going in a different direction. Yeah. So. Uh, the, the brilliant and insightful Richard Chu and I will be right back after this break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Richard Chu. You hear me here every Sunday on the family meeting. Um, Richard, uh, what is it? I couldn't hear. I, I heard I was trying to eavesdrop on your conversation with Paul, but I didn't do a very good job of it. So what is it that uh, you think we should be talking about now? Well, I just wanted to say that the, vote, the, the folks that have been dedicated in following all of the WCPT programs, Monday through Sunday, um, you know, we're in an election year, election season, and a lot of things are going to be out there that are going to come from all different angles. And I just want to ask our listeners that follow all of our shows to just be mindful that, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different things that are local, that are regional, that are national and international. And we're not going to always get it quote unquote right. So, you know, we, as, as part of the WCPT family, we, we want our listeners and followers support to know that we're doing everything we can to bring the best messaging and the best topics 
that we can to the to the station and to the shows that are represented on the on the station. So I just want to let everybody. Have you guys know, been getting grief about that? Not so much grief, but I just pay attention to some of the things that are out there when I see things that maybe are critical of any of our shows, ours, yours, Santita's, um, you know, I just want to make sure that people recognize that we are, we are in an election season, election year, and it's going to be a, it's going to be a hellfire year. So just, just pay it, everybody, you know, lean in, lean in and so we can move in the right direction to save our democracy. <laughs> and, uh, not, well, Richard, not one thing I did want to ask you about, um, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend. There were rumors that aides to Donald Trump were in conversation with RFK Jr. about RFK Jr. being Trump's vice presidential candidate. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting you brought that up because yesterday on the family meeting, we were talking about who might who might his VP selection be. And, you know, we were saying that, you know, Nikki Haley might be the, the one and blah, 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 just based on, on the numbers. But I said it will probably be an outlier, someone that, that he hasn't been running against. And that's certainly Kennedy's in the in the in the mix, but not running against uh, Trump necessarily running more against Biden. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's real. I saw that, too. Heard it as well. Uh, what will what will the impact be? Um, it's it's interesting because the, I think a lot of people are going to be curious, but you got to keep in mind who's who's at the top of the ticket. It's still who's at the top of the ticket, and um, you know, I, I if he is the, if he is the selection, um, I'm I, I'm licking my chops for the debate between he and Vice President Harris. <laughs> Yes. I'm just being a little sarcastic. Would you think they would even do that, though? Because, you know, I don't I don't think even when he finally clinches the nomination. By the way, this is another interesting wrinkle. Uh, There was leaked last week that the Republican National Committee had drafted something to release that says, you know, Donald Trump is so far ahead. He's obviously the nominee. We're not going to do any more primaries. We're just going to name him the nominee. Trump folks apparently reached out and said, don't do that. Don't do that. He doesn't want to start a battle with Joe Biden this early. He wants to sail through the primaries, winning primary after primary, showing people how popular he is and not having to face off against Joe Biden until the last possible second. It wouldn't surprise me if he refused to debate Joe Biden at all. I agree with you a thousand percent. I think that's where his head is at. He, for, for a couple of reasons, he knows he'll get he'll get beaten in the debates, and it'll be just his normal bluster afterward that I won the debates and blah blah blah. But I also realize that you got to realize that the, the questions that are going to come at him, um, no matter what the questions are, Joe Biden's going to be prepared to pivot to talk about the ninety one. That current indictments, the 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 eighty three or eighty eight and a half you know million dollars, it's it's he in a debate environment he's exposed to Joe Biden's ability as a former prosecutor at eighty years of age to pivot and turn the conversation there. He's not going to go. He's not going to show up for the debates, and he also thinks he's above he's above the uh, above all that, and um, so. 
yeah, I, I don't think he will. I, I think he will. I, I think he's going to run for cover and do <laughs> these other do these. Other, cause he's not mandated. He's not mandated to do the debates. If he gets a nomination, he doesn't have to do the debates. The debates are a product of what the media has been putting on us for for a few decades. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that, and that's that's really what that's been all about. So he's not obligated to do it. Neither is, frankly, you know, President Biden. But. I think what Trump's going to do if he gets a nomination, which I think I'm pretty certain he will, even if he gets convicted, I don't see him not getting a nomination convicted. You know, will mm-hmm. he get put in jail before before the, the RNC convention and we and all the other things that are going to happen in late summer, fall? I don't think he's going to get put in jail by that time. He could get convicted. And then he'll work the system to keep himself out of jail yep. so that there can be an, I really believe that yep, Eric and I, I have too. been saying that for two years now, but yeah, I don't think he's going to debate. I, I just don't. And whoever his candidate his uh, running mate will be. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what will happen there. I think that, uh, that we'll have to wait and see. I don't, I have opinions, but I don't know if they're really, you know, <laughs> that strong. Well, if if Donald Trump doesn't want to debate Joe Biden, it would seem to me that he would almost be required to um, refuse to let his vice president candidate debate Kamala Harris, because then the question would be, well, these guys are debating. Why not you? You know, I mean, they have nothing. You know, I don't think that they have much to gain and they have so much to lose, which is exactly why he didn't participate in any of the presidential primary debates. Yeah, that's you're absolutely right. And it'll be consistent. The other side of it is he may be just waiting until the until debate season comes along. He'll put it out there. I'm only going to do one debate and it's going to be on these terms and they won't uh-huh. meet the terms. And then he'll say, this is what I offer to do. And nobody wants to do it. Uh-huh. They're wrecking my priest. It's, it's same old stuff. I mean, yeah. it, that, that's the thing. But, you know, Joan, this is this has been my position for the longest time with, with, with Donald Trump. Donald Trump is nothing without the crazy a supporters that he has. Take them away. He's nothing but a mouthpiece. So it's not I'm not blaming the dude. We already know who he is and what he's all about. It's the people that keep supporting him. That's the that's where that's the where the the sauce is. And they're not going to go away. And even with the indictments and the convictions and all these, they're not going to go away. So what has to happen is and I'm saying this to everybody. I said it yesterday in the family meeting. I am unapologetically voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and supporting every senator, Democratic and and, uh, Democratic House um, member to get them elected and reelected for this next season. Because Donald Trump and no matter what people think about where and what with Joe Biden's imperfections and this, that and the other, Joe Biden is not going to try to hurt me. Donald Trump is. And that's the message that I want everybody to hear that listens to any of us on WCPT. We're going to have different points of view about what, when and how. But Joe Biden is not looking to hurt me or you. He, Donald Trump is. So mm-hmm. imperfect as, as, as President Biden is, I'm going to ride with him because he ain't trying to hurt me or the people that I care about. That's all I need. I don't need anything else from the administration. Literally, I don't. But you know what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think that's got to be our singular message. Joe Biden's not trying to hurt us. Donald Trump is. Yeah. Get out and vote. Take five mm-hmm. people with you. 
Stop whining. Stop, you know, <laughs> clutching your pearls. Get in the game and play. I mean, it's not complicated. And folks are getting distracted by all this other craziness, Joan. It's just, I look at it and go, stop getting distracted. Pay attention. Get yep. registered. Go vote. Bring five people with you. It's That's, like, it's, I don't know if you get a chance to listen to Stephanie Miller on Fridays. She has the comedy team of Frangela, and they're like, what's for breakfast? Biden. What's for lunch? Biden. Biden. What's Biden. for dinner? Biden. What's the snack? Biden. What's the <laughs> there overnight? you go. There you no, go. It's, it's, it's that simple. It, it is a it, they, they, they package it in in the the conversation around an African-American you know dinner table. What do we have? This is what we're having for dinner. Stop asking for this. This is what we got for dinner. And it's hilarious. But in simplicity, simplistic messaging, it's where we need to be. Period. Yep. In. yep. Um, Richard, um, anything that you want to promote for this Sunday's show? Well, we are working hard on bringing in more voices to the show. We've been blessed to have, you know, to, to be with the CPT team. And Eric and I, like always, we're, we're, we are, we're, we're controversial because Eric speaks his mind and I speak my mind about things. And a lot of times that might rub people the wrong way. But it's, it's our goal to keep people thinking and not just sitting in the same mode all the time. So anything new coming up? Not really. We're just taking the, the subjects as they come at us and what's happening on a weekly basis. Um, I think this upcoming week, you'll hear more about us trying to do more outreach with the communities and trying to do some things where we can, um, you know, potentially do some remote uh, broadcasts this year. Um, just because, we, well, we've had people that have asked us, hey, you should come and do it remote here. We've had some chambers of commerce and some other entities that have said, God, we'd love to have you guys. So, you know, we're working, we're working our way through that. And, and that's, that's something we get, we're excited about. And like I've said before, I, we're just blessed to be able to be a part of what goes on at WCPT, which is why I said earlier what I said to all of our listeners on all of our shows, Monday through Sunday, just hang in there. It's going to be a tough year, but we have to work together rather than work away from each other because working together is where our power and our strength is as a message. So I really just want our followers across all of our shows to just hang in there and, and know that we have an opportunity and let's fulfill that. Richard, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, we listen to the family meeting, and um, and I look forward if, if to uh, to any live broadcast that you guys arrange. That could be that could be a lot of fun. Richard Chu, um, thank you for being here. Thanks, Joan, for having me. Have a great week. I miss seeing you. Yeah, me too. You. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Um, earlier today, Block Club Chicago posted an article written by Rima Amon, who is from Chalkbeat. And it uh, talks about how the Chicago Board of Education, which had been... Um, well, it had come under fire for a number of reasons, but the Chicago Board of Education renewed the contracts for 49 charter schools. One of the big criticisms of this Board of Education was that uh, they were anti-charter school, that they were going to, you know, basically get rid of the charter schools. But uh, it was announced to, to, um, that they voted Thursday to renew the agreements with 12 charter schools 
um, the agreements, um, no, 12 charter networks, the impact is on 49 schools. And uh, the contracts for all of the schools up for renewal were renewed. Um, most of the contracts were renewed for three or four years starting this July. I know um, the Chicago Public Schools are near and dear to the heart of Paul Vallis. He ran for mayor recently, but once upon a time, he was in charge of the Chicago Public Schools. Hi, Paul. How are you? How have you been? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of knocked out with a little um, respiratory problem here. Fortunately, it's not COVID for the fourth time. But my mother got the, the other virus, the, uh, um, the um, um, RSV that's going around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had a, so she's in the hospital. Oh, she's, she's doing. But yeah, she's ninety four. So, so we had two sickles. It was me, and there was my mom, and my wife was taking care of both of us. You know, for those of us <clears throat> of a certain age, there's a vaccine for RSV. I got it, and if you haven't gotten it, I would strongly urge you to get it because. Um, respiratory illnesses are very bad at a certain age. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, don't I know it? And yeah, I've, I've of course been, have always been vaccinated and boosted. But yeah, we have to be, we have to be ultra careful. It was interesting. We we're debating who infected who this time around. I think <laughs> my mother went to Florida for a couple of weeks. I, I was kind of blaming her for infecting me. So anyway, but. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's like whenever somebody in this house gets sick, you know, you try to do like like we're some kind of forensic investigators. Well, let's see. Where was I? Who did I talk to? Oh, I bet it was yeah, there. Yeah. Yes, those people looked sick. I bet it was them. You know, there's no way of there's no way of knowing. And uh, but I will tell you, you know, not only do I have eight covid vaccinations, I have two pneumonia vaccinations and I have an RSV vaccination and I still have had COVID four times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Well, you know, you just but have to take care of you. you I was never healthy. hospitalized. So, yeah, so, yeah. I, so I, I'm still I'm still ahead of the game. So what do you think about this news that 49 charter schools have been renewed for anywhere from three to four years by this board that was coming under a lot of criticism. Well, you know, I, I never thought that they were going to block charters from being renewed. I think what they were going to do was a combination of things. Uh, the first thing was their, uh, um, they were going to limit their renewal period because a number of the charters got renewed for two and three years. And, you know, charters like regular schools need long-term stability mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the school board can extend charters as long as six, seven, even 10 years, particularly if those schools are high performing. So limiting them uh, to two years or three years or even four years is really not enough time. It makes it difficult to recruit students and keep students. It makes it difficult to recruit faculty. So clearly they're going to try to strangle charters uh, that way. The second uh, thing that they're doing to charters is, uh, you know, virtually none of the capital money that the district has allocated. I think they've spent $3.2 billion on capital since 2017. Only less than two, two, two-tenths of 1% has been allocated to charter schools. If you remember, when, they, when Rahm Emanuel shut down uh, the 50 school buildings, the school, the charters were barred from renting 
even renting or leasing any of those buildings. So the buildings just sat there idle. Even if the community wanted to invite a charter to occupy the building to reopen the school, they were barred from doing so. And and so that that discrimination against the charters has continued. And, and then finally, on the average, charter school students get about eighty. $8,600 per pupil less than traditional public school children and charter school children are public school children. I've not charter heard that figure before. School. What What do you mean? Like less in state money or, or what? Uh, it's a combination. So when you look at all the per pupil funding, whether it's through general state aid, whether it's through special grants, whether it's through operational support, on the average – they get about one-third less for funding. A story was done of all 50 states, and they were ranking the states in terms of the percentage of money that's allocated to charters. So clearly, look, the Chicago Teachers Union doesn't like charter schools. They oppose charter schools. They're attempting to unionize the charter school members. Uh, uh, you know, that's certainly been a struggle. And they are, are systematically going after a pu- public school choice, whether it's the magnet schools uh, or, or the charter schools. And let me point out that... Charter schools uh, educate about 15% of the children in the Chicago public schools, including one in every four high school students. One in every four high school students goes to the Chicago public schools. 96% of the children who go to to public charter schools in Chicago are black and Latino, and 87% are low income. So it's the black and Latino, the poor black and Latinos who are being denied uh, their fair share of, of funding, their fair share of capital dollars. And it's their schools uh, that, in some cases, are being uh, 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 awarded these 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 limited, uh, uh, you know, uh, extensions uh, uh, that that only add to the uh, uh, anxiety and, and uncertainty as to the future of the school. Well, if if there aren't the same resources, what would be the attraction? Why would anybody send their kid to a charter school? if there was going to be more per-pupil spending if they went to a public school? Well, you know, because of, because charters have freedom. They have a longer school day, a longer school year. They have much more uh, autonomy over the selection of staffing, their staffing model. Uh, you know, charter schools are not subjected to a lot of the collective bargaining protections, uh, the type of union-imposed uh, mandates, collective bargaining mandates that restrict and limit the school day, the school year, that impose all sorts of restrictions on the school itself. Charter schools have much greater autonomy, much greater freedom. And and if you look at the uh, National Credo study or research that is done on charter school performance when you're comparing apples to apples, I'm talking about charter schools when you're looking at the demographics. The charter schools do much better. Even in Chicago, they do much better with black and Latino students. Well, yeah, but we've also also established that you know, a public school is a public school, and they have to take everybody. A charter school can is it can be a selective enrollment, and no, you know, a lot of that, um, a lot of charter sure. schools do get rid of kids who have certain disabilities, certain learning problems, and certain behavioral problems. Yeah, Joan, let me point out that that's, that's woefully overstated. And, and if somebody was kicked out of a charter school for, for uh, the charter school's uh, failure to comply with special education standards, they could be sued. Because state law requires that the charter schools enroll all the kids. 
there's this myth out there that charter schools are being selective in their enrollment. They're not. Actually, the only selective enrollment schools in the Chicago public schools are the magnet schools. Charter schools have to be open enrollment. They have to meet their special education mandates. Uh, they have to meet their certain requirements. And, 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 and look, as superintendent, uh, you know, uh, you know, even traditional public schools sometimes, uh, uh, you know, quite inappropriately will try to, you know, to try to push students uh, who have been problem students out of their schools. So at the end of the day, you know, nobody is guilt free when it comes to at least even if you're not able to be selective, trying in some cases uh, to be selective. But charter schools are open enrollment schools, they have to accept the kids that apply, they have to meet the special education standards. We're going to keep on hearing this rhetoric from Stacey Davis-Gates about charter schools being selective, but the documentation, the data is irrefutable about how charters are performing. They want to get rid of charter schools, it's as simple as that, uh, and uh, they're hell-bent on doing it, and they're going to do it through a combination of reasons, and, and they're going to push this sustainable schools model this community schools model, and I have to ask myself, why aren't all the schools community schools right now? When you look at the money that's being allocated, why aren't all the schools doing the things that they claim that they'll be able to do under this community schools model? I mean, they, they've only been running things since 2010. So at the end of the day, you know, the union... But you know, the Chicago Teachers Union is powerful. There's no, there's absolutely no doubt about it. But I, I'm not comfortable with this idea that somehow they are the sole arbiter of how the schools run. There is a school board. Um, there is a school board. It isn't just the teachers union mandates something and, and it happens. It is, um, there is, um, there are several folks who determine what happens at the schools. And mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's unfair to put everything at the feet of Stacey Davis Gates. Um, having said that, I want to know if you've heard any of the rumors that I've heard that um, that there will be a teacher strike in 2025 when the contract comes up, that maybe um, the relationship between the CTU and Brandon Johnson isn't quite what at least the media portrays it to be. Have you heard any rumors about a teacher strike? No, no, no. And I don't think there's going to be one. And I think that, that, you know, if anything, they may try to create the perception that somehow they have some fundamental differences, but they really don't look in the budget that he allocated. He, uh, this budget that he allocated, uh, uh, $271 million actually went to the schools, both in terms of the tip surplus and also the, the city picking up the, uh, the pension that uh, the municipal employees pension contribution that the district had previously been forced to pick up. So he's already been accommodating them left and right. So I don't anticipate that. And, and look, uh, I'm just not blaming Stacey Davis Gates, but the bottom line is the teacher unions did keep schools closed for 77 consecutive weeks with devastating consequences long after the science has pretty much said that the schools could reopen safely. Uh, so I do fault them. And since 2010, there have been a whole series of work stoppages uh, time and time again or threatened work stoppages. But, you know, the central office needs to be broken up, too. This is a district that spends $30,000 per kid, and only about 55% of the dollars that go to the Chicago Public Schools actually find its way into the local schools. If you go to the school district's website, don't take my, my word for it, 
If you go to their own website and you look at the number of employees that they, teachers that they have per students, it's one in 15. And the number of employees that the district has per student, it's one employee for every seven and a half students. Well, $30,000 a kid, one employee for every seven and a half students, how's the money being allocated? I mean, I mean, the district is crying poor again. Um, the teachers union claims that the district needs $30 billion if they're going to have this green revolution that's going to address the historic racism uh, that has resulted in children in Chicago being historically disadvantaged. You know, so, so at the end of the day, they're already spending $30,000 a kid. Second highest uh, uh, per pupil Yeah, but funding. when you, that, that per pupil spending is a little bit uh, deceptive because a lot of that money is already allocated to things that don't really have anything to do with the, with the pupil. You know, the, there's the building expenses and there's other expenses. So that's a, that's a little bit misleading to say that because it, it implies that that money is being spent just on the student. Anyway, Paul, we've got to I want to talk to you yeah. about uh, bringing home Chicago and the real estate transfer tax, because I know you wrote an op ed on that in the Chicago Tribune. We need to take a break. Paul Bellis and I are going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by former school's CEO and mayoral candidate Paul Vallis. Paul recently wrote an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune where he talked about the um, the tax, the real estate transfer tax increase that is part of an effort called Bring Home Chicago, designed to raise money to help the unhoused. Some people are roughly calling it the mansion tax because it's going to affect real estate transfers of a million dollars or more. Uh, Paul, tell the audience about for those who didn't didn't have a chance to read it. Tell them about your op ed, what what you wanted, the points you wanted to make. Yeah, yeah, well, there's a number of points. First of all, the tax will overwhelmingly be uh, be uh, 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 paid by uh, commercial property owners. Because when you look at property sales uh, 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 of over a uh, million dollars, about 90 percent of the uh, uh, of the property values are from commercial property. So when they say it's a mansion tax, it's really a tax on commercial property owners. And if you're selling commercial property for over a million dollars, it's, it's you know that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a robust business. So yeah, I mean that's like really if you is- own. Uh, a two, if you're an elderly couple that owns a two flat or a three flat or a four flat or a five flat, and you know you're you're using the rental income that to supplement your social security, you know that's that's one of the things that I, when they, they did this in Los Angeles, they made the bottom level five million dollars, which frankly seems mm-hmm. a little bit more fair to me. Yeah. And, and they didn't generate nearly the revenue anticipated. So the bottom line is uh, it is not a mansion tax. It's really a tax on commercial property. And it's really going to hit, as you pointed out, it's also going to hit a lot of rental properties, and it's going to hit them hard. The second thing is it's not going to generate nearly the money anticipated because the commercial real estate market has really plummeted in, in terms of property values. You know, we've seen all the numbers. And, um, and, and we're looking at a massive shift in tax burden because, as you know, uh, because, because local governments uh, 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 get in taxes what they levy, uh, it doesn't matter if property values are plummeting. If they levy at a certain amount, the tax rate's going to rise so, for them to meet their levy requests. So 
so as as the as property values on commercial property uh, decline, there's going to be a shift in tax burden to residential property owners, and and that's we're already beginning to see that. Uh, Casey's running around in a panic because that's happening, and, and it's only going to get worse. And simply adding another tax on commercial property owners on top of the other mandates that they've been imposing, and commercial property in Chicago, incidentally, is the second highest tax commercial property in the country. When you look at all the taxes that are being paid from property taxes to sales taxes, etc. Uh, um, so well, they're also fantastic. the current administration is also making a move. I read about it in Cranes. That was something that I believe you had also suggested, which was I think what they are planning to do is also take some of the TIF money and issue right. bonds off of the TIF money and use that money. Right, right. right. One of the things that I'd recommended is that they issue TIF. Uh, uh, what, what I call revenue anticipation bonds using TIF proceeds, and not only to raise money to fund housing, but also to raise money to do environmental uh, environmental cleanup, uh, to uh, to make uh, uh, investments in infrastructure, and to put additional money into the pension system. So, so using a tax increment financing uh, 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 anticipation uh, uh, revenues. To, and, and bonding off that to to invest in infrastructure like housing is one of the things that I've been that really I recommend I've been recommending for the last four or five years. So so I think that's a much more viable alternative than imposing another tax on 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 the, uh, the already highest tax commercial property. In the what country. would you do to uh, ease the crisis of the unhoused? It takes money if you're going to get some land and build some tiny houses or or whatever. Rehab buildings that are that are abandoned. Where where would you find that money? Well, you know, first of all, I would use TIF dollars. First, uh, you know, first of all, uh, they could have simply allocated uh, a portion of the TIF surplus. The TIF surplus this year was well over four hundred million dollars. They could have easily jump started that program by allocating by allocating money from the TIF monies, but but they instead gave another two hundred seventy one million dollars to the Chicago Public Schools. Now, which incidentally constituted a windfall. Uh, the, the second thing is I've talked about doing the TIF bond, using future TIF revenues, dedicating those revenues, I- issuing bonds, amortizing interest. You could probably raise well over a billion dollars right now uh, to help finance that type of investment. And then I recommended some other things, too. You know, the city should go in. The city should secure and seize property, residential property that's unoccupied. Turn that property over to local developers, local not-for-profits, because there's there's a need for housing. For I, I'm, I mean, the city the city has only 140 domestic violence beds uh, uh, in the entire city for the hundreds of domestic violence uh, 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 victims seeking shelter every night. It, I mean, it's a real tragedy when you think about it. When you look at all the money we're spending on migrants and how little money we're spending to, to deal with individuals who have serious homelessness and housing needs right now. So, so obviously, confiscating and securing through eminent domain uh, the, the those residential properties that are empty right now. Uh, you know, getting the CHA in the game uh, with their available housing space, using the tax increment financing uh, mechanism to raise money to provide uh, housing for the homeless, affordable housing right now, and then providing property tax abatements uh, for for uh, individuals who ha- who are providing property uh, 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 are providing housing for for low-income families uh, so that they can kind of control their rents and and to um, and 
and so that they can make their rents affordable. I mean, those are things that you can do in combination uh, that I, I think would begin to make a difference. But I don't see, other than the TIF proposal that they've come out with, which is something that I've talked about at nauseum on, on your show, I really don't see anything other than the tax, so to speak. You know what I mean? The transaction tax increase. Paul, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Paul, how often are you writing op-eds in the Tribune? Is there a set um, a, a calendar to it? Yeah, you know, I've been getting about one uh, uh, one a week, I would say. You know, I'd love to do more, but but I think that's that's about that's about as many as they can stand for me. <laughs> so no, I know I've been. I've been doing about one a week. I, I probably write three or four a week, but uh, they've been they've been selectively they've been choosing one, and then you know I, you know I'll do a, a one or two pieces a week for uh, Illinois policy. But you know I've been writing for the Manhattan Institute, and I've I've written for the Wall Street Journal and City Journal in New York. So I've been uh, you know so I've been I've been kind of a man of letters. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed writing and, and oh my god, and, an elder and, and, statesman. Are you becoming an elder statesman? Yeah. Yeah, we have with an emphasis on elder. In fact, my my wife just walked in and she's nodding. She says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a real." Yeah. Well, it is always fun to talk to you and uh, read your writing. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your patience and thank and thank you to your listeners. Have a great Have a great evening. You too. We are going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm happy to welcome back Fred Sow, who's the policy director at the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. Fred, welcome back. How are you? (laughs) I'm good, Joan. Good to be with you again. Did you by any chance hear Brandon Johnson's uh, live news conference today? You know, there were uh, almost 3,000 migrants who were set to be removed from shelters by the end of, I think, of this week. And um, there was um, there's a new plan. Um, Were you able to hear it? And if so, what do you think? Uh, I did not hear the press conference. Um, some of my colleagues, uh, I have been in communication with the city, so I am aware that uh, the deadline um, to leave the shelters is being extended by several weeks. My, my understanding was March 15th. Um, did I get that correct? Oh, it was a little confusing because it was like, well, for those who oh. came in this date, it's going to be this. For those who came in this oh. date or two weeks later, for those who are coming in now. And I sort of um, I got lost in the various permutations <laughs> of this date leads to that date. Um, but definitely it's, you know, it, nobody's going to be kicked out the end of this week. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, the the the, um, the impending deadline, the impending deadline was actually last week in the midst of the polar vortex that we were we were experiencing. And yeah, that got extended to February 1st, which is Thursday. And uh, so fortunately, yeah, it looks like um, folks will be able to stay you know, relatively safe and warm in, indoors, um, you know, um, you know, at least at least for the time being, which is good. Is the situation, <clears throat> would you say it's improved or worse since we last spoke, Fred? Well, yeah, when we spoke last time, um, that was uh, 
that was June, June, as I recall, um, folks are still camped out at the police stations um, and the airports or outside the police stations in tents. Um, so um, fortunately, you know, it looks, you know, fortunately, the, the city has opened up additional shelter space uh, and it's uh, no longer using the police stations. The police, you know, people in the police stations have since been or, you know, have since moved into moved into shelters. Um, and in that, and that also includes uh, the people who were camped out outside the police stations. Um, you know, we still have certain certain overflow issues. Um, you know, uh, the, you know, uh, particularly at the uh, at the landing zone at the you know uh, in the West Loop. Um, you know, we did have people who. Have, Basically, had to camp out in buses uh, overnight, uh, particularly during the during the cold snap. Um, but um, at, at least we don't have hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands, of people camped out at the police stations, which is which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there were work permits allowed by the Biden administration, at least for people who came to this country within a certain time frame. Is uh, are the are the migrants who are eligible? Are they getting employment? Is this helping? Well, um, so yeah, Joan, what you're referring to is uh, the extension of uh, what's something called temporary protected status um, to uh, people from Venezuela who came in uh, on or before July 31st of last year, um, and so you know a good number of people who you know who were in Chicago or who are elsewhere elsewhere in the United States uh, came in before that cutoff date. They are now eligible to. Apply apply for this status, and with that status comes uh, eligibility for work permits. Um, so uh, my understanding is, though, that, um, you know, Quite a, quite a number of people have been able to qualify for the, for those for these work permits and have been able to receive them. Unfortunately, that number is still uh, unfortunately still fairly low. Um, it's uh, it's you know about, you know last the last I saw it was just over a thousand. Um, and uh, so part of the problem is that uh, quite a number of people who are still in the shelters arrived after July 31st. Um, so, um, you know, so they are not going to qualify for this. Uh, a number of them are, you know, are going to qualify for work permits due to parole, um, which is something that um, <clears throat> something that the Border Patrol is able to extend to them, um, you know, when they're once they've cleared and, you know, are on their way to, you know, to Chicago or wherever their destination is. Um, but, um, you know, we, we have seen issues with respect to, you know, just being able to access uh, the legal assistance that's, um, that's available. Fortunately, um, you know, there, you know, there are, or there, there have been some coordinated efforts to try to get resources, uh, at very least the people in the shelters mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to see whether they are eligible for work permits uh, or, or, or temporary protected status. So that is working, um, and that is you know that has been that has provided um, uh, resources for folks to get get their applications completed, to get you know to get their fees waived, and to get uh, into into the processing line um, at um, 
U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Unfortunately, those those processing lines are still quite long, um, and um, that's that may account for um, the relatively small number of people who've actually re- received the work permit card in hand um, and uh, and are now able to work. So, you know, the, you know, but but. Uh, you know, fortunately, the, the resources are there. They have been allocated. It's now a matter of making sure that the process works the way it should be. Brandon Johnson got his administration mm-hmm. to, you know, pass ordinances where, you know, if migrants mm-hmm. are dropped off randomly by bus drivers, you know, the, they're going to go after the bus companies and they're going to impound the buses. And, and then I started right. reading about how, uh, to get around that, the buses were dropping people off in the suburbs, and the suburbs were right. passing similar laws. And most recently, I read something about mm-hmm. uh, a busload of people was dropped off in one of the suburbs, and they felt that they didn't have any resources. So that particular town put them back on a different bus and drove them to Chicago. Um I mean, good God, you know, and a lot of people keep saying (laughs) to me, why doesn't Kwame Raul go after the state of Texas? Why why aren't we seeing, you know, Greg Abbott, you know, charged with human trafficking or or even if it has Mm -hmm. to be something that they go after them in civil court? Because the one the only thing that everybody seems to Mm -hmm. agree on, Fred, is that this Mm -hmm. uh, problem of migrants being dropped off on the side of the road is going to get worse mm-hmm. because Greg Abbott wants to really um, embarrass Biden as the DNC comes to Chicago. Yeah, well, um, this whole situation would be much more manageable and much more, you know, and handled in a much more humane, you know, and and I would argue efficient way uh, if uh, only the state of Texas, um, I mean, were active, act, actually cooperating with and coordinating with the people, you know, the people and the government, the government agencies uh, for the places where he's sending these buses. Um, so, you know, that way. You know, we know when a bus is going to arrive. Um, you know, the city of Chicago would be able to better prepare, uh, you know, and align resources, and that goes with all the all the other all the other locales where the buses are arriving. But um, you know, Governor Abbott has shown over the past couple of years, ever since he started sending buses to Washington D.C. and New York, that he has no interest in that, mm-hmm. and uh, that's 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 on him. Um, and you know, meanwhile, you know. The, Meanwhile, the bus companies are making bank on this. Um, they're, you know, they're they're getting they're getting paid to to you know to send the buses up here, um, and uh, you know they get paid either way, regardless of where they drop people off. Um, so uh, yeah, un- unfortunately, you know the you know we you know we have been seeing buses drop people off in the middle of the night um, here in Chicago. Um, you know this the Mayor Johnson and the and the City Council did pass an ordinance uh, toward the end of last year, basically saying, 
hey, if you know if you're going to drop people off, um, please be so be so good as to drop people off during these hours when we have the resources available to greet the bu- greet the buses, to greet the people, and you know, and take care of the people who are who are who are getting off the bus. But mm-hmm. again, Governor Governor Abbott is not doing that. Instead, he's you know he's working his way around that by sending buses to you know send, sending buses to various communities in the suburbs, you know, um, and then and then and then going so far as to buy buy metro tickets for uh, for all the folks who are on the bus who you know to send them to send them to downtown Chicago. Um, so you know, and you know, and you know, if if the bus happens to drop people off in the middle of the night when the when the metro trains aren't running, well, that's, uh-huh. you know, the, the you know the people you know the the government agencies of in you know in these suburbs have to have to deal with that too. So yeah, and and the worst case, the worst scenario that we've seen is uh, a bus you know dropping people off at a gas station in Kankakee, and uh, uh, the poor, these poor folks um, ended up uh, either hanging out at the gas station or, or the more intrepid of them started walking up Interstate 57 uh, uh. on their way to Chicago before, yeah, before, um, before the sheriff, the sheriff's department uh, finally caught up with the situation and got people sent, sent off to Chicago. But yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this, you know, Greg, Governor Abbott is a chaos agent and he's yeah. shown this with the way he's handled the buses. He's, you know, and, and the way he's blocking border patrol from, from the city park and Eagle Pass and, you know, setting up buoys in the middle of the river and, and all of this. And, you know, and now he's, you know, calling on other governors to send, you know, to send their their state guard and national guards to you know to Texas, and unfortunately, this is becoming a Republican talking point too. Um, yeah. So, and he, and he's getting encouragement from uh, the presumptive nominee of the party um, for for next fall's election. So, yeah, it's. Um, you know, this 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 would all this would all be much better if um, you know he weren't playing these weren't playing these games and you know trying to trying to embarrass uh, you know. Um, no, you know, uh, big city mayors, um, and um, you know, and you know, if he had if he had a lick of compassion, he would be, you know, he would be, you know, he would be arranging care instead of you know playing you know playing these political games and doing these stunts. Well, that's exactly that's exactly what it feels like. It's just political. He's going he's he's going for political capital. I was talking to one immigration mm-hmm. lawyer and she said it was she said it's like these people um, aren't human. They, they don't. The Greg Abbott and mm-hmm. Ken Paxton don't really consider these people f- human beings because you couldn't mm-hmm. do the things they're doing. You couldn't treat them the way they're treating them if you really felt that they were, you know, fellow fellow passengers on this journey um, that we call mm-hmm. that we call life. Uh, Fred, we need to take yeah. um, we need to take a break. Um, and uh, we're going to continue our discussion with Fred Sow, who's the policy director at the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Fred Sow, and we have been talking about the migrant situation. And, you know, Fred, one point I want to make, because I don't think we make this point often enough. These people who are coming in, they're not illegals. They're not sneaking in in the dead of night 
or being, you know, picked up in Mexico and put on buses and dropped off here. The vast majority of these people are in this country in a legal process to try to achieve citizenship. Is that not correct? That, that's correct, Joan, um, and that that is a very important point that um, that we try to make every chance of the weekend. Um, and uh, yet, unfortunately, people still get confused. Um, but yes, it, it, you know, so. Um, the, the the people who are arriving, um, you know, on the buses are, you know, all, you know, predominantly people who are, you know, seeking asylum here in the United States, um, and you know, um, a good chunk of them have already gone through a screening process um, with uh, Customs and Border Protection at a border checkpoint, um, you know, so. Uh, you know, you, know uh, you all may be familiar with um, or have heard about this app that's uh, called CBP-1, where people can schedule an appointment uh, at a border station and uh, speak with a speak with a border agent and make their make their initial claim. And when people go through that process, they're able to um, get a parole and uh, stay in the United States while, you know, while they're while they're going through the process. Um, uh, you know, there are also other people who are just going going around the border checkpoints uh, that, you know, for the most part, they are turning themselves into Border Patrol and trying to make their claims for asylum that way. Um, th those folks will also get processed. And uh, if they are able to make a colorable claim for asylum, they will be set up with a you know, set, set up um, in the in the asylum process and be sent on their way. Um, so, yeah, for the mo for the most part, then you know these these people are um, you know these the people who have been allowed to remain in the United States have been screened and have gone through a process to establish that yeah they they have some kind of claim to humanitarian protection and um, and you know now now they're now they're uh, you know basically waiting out the process and you know for a good number of them have court dates set already. Unfortunately, the courts are so backlog that it's going to take years um, for them to, um, you know, finally get their court date. But that said, um, that also gives them time uh, in order to um, in order to, uh, um, you know, find representation, find an attorney who can take their case and, you know, go through, go, go through their claims and try to find the documentation that they need in order to in order to make their make their cases um, in the immigration court. Do you think the Biden administration will extend the dates uh, for people to be eligible to apply for work visas? Because that's just, you know, that just seems like 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 the most basic help of all. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, um, you know, the rules that govern uh, you know, eligibility for work permits is uh, set in federal law and federal statute, and we we all know how dysfunctional Congress is these days. Um, so um, be, being able to pass any kind of changes in Congress is going to be a real challenge. Um, there may be there may be some things that the administration can do on its own, like um, like the, the the extension of temporary protected status, um, you know, which again is you know, is enabling, you know, you know, 
thousands of people to be able to get to get their work permits. Um, beyond that, it gets a little tricky and a little dicey. Um, and uh, and you know, unfortunately, we've also been seeing that any steps that the Biden administration takes to be more protective and more welcoming for immigrants, um, you know, is uh, you know, many of those steps are being challenged in court. Uh, many of those lawsuits are being led by Ken Paxton, uh, who you you already mentioned, Joan, the Attorney General of Texas. Um, so um, and you know, even some of the even some of the parole programs that uh, have enabled people to process um, to come to the United States um, from Venezuela or from you know from Haiti or from or, or from Cuba or from Nicaragua, even that's being challenged um, in court. So um, so you know that. So, you know, while we would definitely want uh, the administration to try to do whatever it can, whatever with whatever's in its legal authority to, uh, you know, to, you know, extend protections and extend work, per, work, work permit eligibility, um, you know, again, you know, there, there, there are pretty significant constraints. And, um, and even within those constraints, um, there are unfortunately different, differing interpretations of the law that, um, that, you know, people like Ken Paxson and Greg Abbott are, are trying to persuade courts, particularly courts in Texas, to, to, to prevail upon. And it doesn't look like any sort of legislation is going to be passed now that we're hearing that Donald Trump has been reaching out, especially to Republican senators and saying, you know, this is a great issue for me to campaign on. So don't do anything because I don't want it to look like Biden's doing anything on this issue. I mean, I think that could yeah. really bounce back to hurt them because I think it's so transparent. We only have about a minute mm-hmm. left. But what do you think when you hear that? Yeah, um, that that just shows how how really dysfunctional this the federal government is right now, and uh, and yeah, it is you know you know while, while many of the aspects of this of this federal legislation are really disturbing, um, it it is really kind of preposterous that um, the the Republican Party is, seems to be more interested in scoring political points uh, mm-hmm. than in solving than trying to solve a problem and coming up with real solutions. Yeah. Uh, What do you think, Fred? I mean, we've been talking about the things that have been on my mind. I want to give you a little Mm -hmm. bit of time as as we wrap this up uh, to tell Mm -hmm. the listeners something that you think we should be paying attention to. Yeah, well, um, let's see. Uh, I know it's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, we definitely have not lost sight of the need for legalization for the 10 to 11 million people who've already, who are already here and who've been here, you know, in many cases for decades, um, you know, who, you know, you know, you know, and who, you know, have started business, who businesses who have, you know, who have homes, who have families here. Um, and, you know, and, you know, there's been there's been an active push over the last year to try to get work permits for many of these many of these people. Um, you know, I, I think you know, you know, I, I hope we will come to a point in this country where Congress is actually able to function, and that um, that we you know we can get legalization for um, for most, if not all of you know all of these people. Um, you know, we just have to keep working at it and building the support and getting the word out that um, that's you know this. This is a solution that we need. Fred, thank you so much. Fred, so 
policy director at Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, somebody that uh, we're probably going to be talking to an awful lot of uh, to in the in the coming months and in the coming year. Fred, thank you again. Anytime, Joan. Thank you. That is going to do it for me. Driving it home with Petty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Until then, stay safe, my friends. Stay warm. Have a great evening and good night.